you need to understand what's at the root because there are going to be bad days. <laughs> and when that happens, when something goes bump in the night, you need to be able to understand that what's driving you is tethered and based on protecting and defending that human problem or solving that human problem and not getting so wrapped up literally around the axle of technology that you forget why you're actually there. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Dr. Adrian Mayers, VP and CISO at Primera Blue Cross. Inspired by an early childhood fascination with computers, Adrian approaches technology as a tool to solve human problems. In his mind, cybersecurity is a team mission. So we cover how to find your fit, tell your program's story, and understand the present danger that comes with the title of CISO. As a CISO, it's not always about if a bad day will happen, but when, and whether you're prepared for it or not. So when a problem arises, how do you trust both tools and your team to solve it? How can you determine a company's culture before committing to a role? And what exactly defines a good security program? Okay, Adrian, if you would, for the uninitiated, please introduce yourself. Who are you and what do you do? Well, I appreciate being on the show. So I'm Adrian Mears, and I'm the Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer at Primera Blue Cross in Seattle. Now, how long have you been there? It's coming up on three years, actually. It's gone by pretty quickly. As you can imagine, the pace of change in this space is pretty significant, but just about three years. And what did you do before then? Where were you before Primera? So before then, I was at a company called Vertifor. So this was in the insurance technology space. It was a SaaS offering providing a multitude of software in that space. And I was there for about four years before that Microsoft for a stint. And then Nokia was really the big chunk of my career. I spent 12 years there at Nokia doing all kinds of interesting things. What campus were you, were you in like Chicago campus or where were you at Nokia? So I was actually beat bopping around. So I started off in Vancouver, BC, and then I was at the White Plains head office in New York. And I came back to the Seattle office here in Bellevue. Now, when we spoke before, we, I was asking how you got your start in tech. And you mentioned it kind of goes all the way back to fifth grade. Tell me about that. Ah, yes, fifth grade. So I remember being in elementary school, and it was my math teacher, Mr. Steele, was starting up computer club after school. And he, he mentioned it to a few students and said, hey, you know, you should come out and check this out. And I was like, eh, okay, seems interesting. Yeah, I was always a big fan of sci-fi, big, big fan of Star Trek, Star Wars, and what have you. Star Wars was actually the first movie I ever saw in the theater, which was awesome. So I decided, like, okay, I'm going to go and check this out. And I just fell in love with it, right? So we had this small little, you know, Sinclair computer. I think it was like a TI-99 or something like that. And I was just fascinated. Well, how this little black box, if you put this language into it, then something else, this output will happen based on this. And it just seemed like a really interesting concept. And then the hunger just continued from there. I was 
It wasn't too long that I was begging my parents for a Commodore VIC-20. I wanted the Commodore 64, but we couldn't afford it. So I got the VIC-20 and just started on my path from there, you know, doing basic programming and playing games. You know, still a huge gamer, PC gamer. I like to make that distinction. Console or PC? Mostly PC, but I do have an Xbox, so I do play around a little bit with a console. But PC is where that immersive experience, I find it the best. So so we didn't talk about this before. What games, what are you playing right now? Well, yeah, it's a great question. So right now I'm playing Call of Duty Vanguard. So I enjoy, you know, kind of first person shooters. And what's interesting, though, is I usually don't do like, you know, the team play or I don't do like the kind of the group play. I enjoy that experience where I almost feel like I'm a character in a movie. So the story is really a big deal for me. And then obviously, you know, the gameplay within that story. But that's usually how I like to experience these games. So more like a single player mission rather than squatting up. That is exactly it. I love the single player mission. Because it literally feels like you're a character in this great narrative, this great movie. And I just find it more fulfilling at the end of it, especially when I accomplish and, and get to the end of that story. And I also have a huge appreciation for the developers that create these really multifaceted narratives. And then all of the great graphics and gameplay that they bake into that. It's really quite immersive. I tend to kind of go the other way. I enjoy a game that's out right now that some might know would be like Hell Let Loose, which is only multiplayer. There is no single player. But it's interesting that you game. Does it take you back as a the human side of things to that sort of same, you know, enjoying Star Wars and the storyline? And is it the entertainment piece or is it a break from the day of sort of the stresses of being an executive at a big company? I think it's I think it's both actually. So I'm a cinephile. I just I love film. I love the idea of film, the storytelling and what have you. So there's a cinematic kind of piece to it, but it's also that escapism. It's also the ability to, you know, to kind of shut one piece down and open up something else and to help transition or make that transition a little bit more meaningful. So when I finish up at, you know, five, six o'clock in the evening, and I usually start at like six AM. I like that transition, right? So I'll go into that fantasy world, if you will, of the video game and then play that for an hour or so, a couple hours, and then I transition into the rest of my evening. It just makes an easier transition for me. The other thing that's interesting, though, that you made me think of was when I was playing Splinter Cell, which is, you know, which is a huge, just a great series, great franchise. A lot of the things that I was doing there, and I started off, you know, kind of physical security was what I was doing at Nokia kind of early days, thinking about ways to circumvent countermeasures and alarm systems and cameras made me think about the real world, right? So there was actually, I remember there was an incident where we were going into a new building, tons of skylights, a beautiful space. And I said, what provisions do we have for those skylights? Do we have contacts? Do we have motion detectors, glass breaks, and what have you? And they were like, are you insane? It's a skylight. And they're, ah, you've never played Splinter Cell. You know what you're talking about. Get the guys back in here. We're going to provision something for those skylights. And we did. That would be a hell of an answer to give in a professional setting. It went over with mixed reviews. Let's just say that. Clearly, you've never played the video games I've played. Let's go back and get some sensors on that glass. I like that. So, yeah, gaming to understand better of you know, circumvention of physical control. We got on the topic early on when we chat last, just on leadership in general, 
And it's funny, you're talking about characters and movie characters. I actually took the note down, and I think you meant it the other way. You said leadership to you is the character that you bring to the position. And I actually took it as not character is in like the strength and the rules by which you operate, but like it is almost more the persona that you bring to the position. But now reflecting on our chat, maybe you meant both. But what did you actually mean when you say, you know, your definition of leadership is the character that you bring? Which character uh, did you reference and why? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I was talking about internal character. I was talking about who you are at your core. What are the decisions and the behaviors that you exhibit when nobody's watching? That's really what I was talking about when I was talking about leadership, because I think leadership and all of the things that you have to do as a leader, it all starts there. Who are you at your core? What kind of character and integrity and truth are you bringing into that role? So it's always, you know, been a starting point for me and something that I think about in a, in a meaningful way. How am I showing up? What are we trying to accomplish? But how am I showing up and what am I valuing and how is my character potentially being tested in this moment or not? You also said that you need to or that we should. The phrase you used was think larger, but you mentioned how do you take on the mantle of being the CISO, being that. And I think that's what you're alluding to, but When you're thinking of taking on a new CISO position and you're going through the interviews, what are the questions that you ask yourself when you're evaluating the position before you even say yes? What advice do you have there, Adrian? Oh, that's that's a, a great question. So I'm thinking back to when I joined Primera back in 2019, what was going through my head? And there were a couple of things. Culture was a big deal. And what do I mean by that? The mindset and the way that the culture embraces the idea of security. Is is cybersecurity and security holistically seen as something that is just the the primary domain of the CISO? Or is it truly, and you know, and this isn't a catchphrase or a t-shirt, but is it truly everyone's responsibility? And when I was able to make that determination, I was able to continue on with a lot more information because the culture at, at Primera was very much everybody's got to lean into this. They may have a bunch of different jobs, but security is something that they need to be thinking about as they go about their day-to-day operations or duties or tasks. So that was one thing. The other piece was, what's the mission here? And if I unpack that, what are we trying to accomplish? Is it just protect and defend? Are we embedded in some way, shape, or form into you know the core business? Are we leveraging this as a competitive advantage? Where does that position show up? What meetings are they in? You know, who are they reporting to? Who are the interested parties within their sphere of influence? Those are the things that were were coming to mind for me. So hopefully most of that is in line. And obviously you're reflecting a little bit on the relationship you have with Primera and the interview process, but just in general, in a generic sense, is there anything that you see that maybe a, a new CISO might do uh, where they catch themselves not asking the right questions or not evaluating the right thing about the position that gets them in trouble later on. And nothing's going to be perfect, and you may have to change some minds and win hearts and minds, as they say. But anything that you would say you know, is a mistake that you shouldn't maybe reconsider, maybe, rather than taking on a bad gig. Is there any any warning signs or any advice you'd have? 
Oh, well, I think that a couple of things come to mind for sure. I think one of the things is ask questions about historical events. How have things been in the past? Have there been some hurdles or negative cybersecurity incidents that they can share to give you some insight? Because you can learn a lot. And this just goes to history in general, right? The ability to understand where you are today and where you're potentially going in the future requires a deep appreciation of the history. So you have to understand what's happened in the past. And they may not be able to get into details, you know, NDAs are in place or what have you. But you can gain some insights, you know, from that dialogue. Are they evasive? Do they not want to answer that? Because what you're building here at the end of the day, and this is kind of the key takeaway, is you're building a relationship. You're building a relationship with individuals, but you're also building a relationship with that organization. And you need to to be comfortable. You need to understand that it's going to be bi-directional. And in order to do this job and to execute on the mission and the mission sets, it's important that you have a good feeling for that relationship right out of the gate. It's only going to get harder after day one. So <laughs> you better be sure. I love the statement. You said a couple of things I think that's really valuable. And for those that are listening, I know there's those that have listened to several of the shows actually to help prepare for interviews. And I'm flattered when I hear that. But even for those that aren't yet interviewing, I love the technique of asking about historical events. You're making them tell a story. And I think getting them to share how did it go down. Again, don't share maybe the number of records involved or anything like that, but how high did the problem go? And, and what was the expectation around who would manage it? And was there any changes in leadership as part of the conclusion of the event? Were any new decisions? Did, did they learn from the problem? Did they take the observations from the incident and make any policy changes? Did they make any architectural changes? Did they make any leadership, ownership changes? And if the answer is no, me personally, I would have a very strong set of questions that would follow right? Why wouldn't you learn from that? Or what is the... So I think that's that asking about historical events. I don't think I've had anyone say that before. And I like that as sort of a, a little miniature interview tabletop, if you will. I think you're spot on. One of the things that I think people forget is that you're being interviewed, but you're also interviewing, you know, the company, the organization, and those individuals. And, you know, the whole interview dynamic just is somewhat uncomfortable, right? There's a lot of expectations. What I try to do is I try to have a conversation very similar to what, to what we're doing now and thinking about, hey, you know what? If this doesn't work out, if this isn't a good fit for whatever reason, it's okay. Something else will come along. But you have to think about those trade-offs that you're willing to make as well, even before you get into the room. Is it a geographical piece, right? So obviously we're, it's remote work, which is a huge thing right now. Is that on the table? Do I want to go into an office every day? Is there something in between, some kind of hybrid way of doing things? So you want to you know, kind of set those things up in your brain before you go in and be like, okay, these are deal breakers for me. These are showstoppers. But also be open-minded, right? Organizations are made up of people. And you can see these great brands and, and these things that we, these large companies, but at the end of the day, it's just a group of people trying to execute on a mission, on a goal, objective. And don't forget that. Don't let the fanfare attenuate 
the way that you're thinking about this relationship. Because you can be starstruck, right? You're like, oh, wow, I'm in such awe that I'm being interviewed by this huge company. It's a relationship. So why do they deserve you there and vice versa? So I think it's important to think about that. How long do you think it's acceptable to look for your next position? I've talked to some CISOs out there, and some of them say it just sort of rips by, and they're kind of beginning to end. It's maybe a month or two, and others that say they've had year-long cycles as they were waiting for certain cards with one organization trying to sort of get on and finish. Do you think that there becomes a point where there's either not enough diligence or, or maybe it even becomes rude if you sort of put yourself on the hook that long? My default answer is it, it depends. It depends on if that process that you're going through just seems exhaustive and unreasonable, then maybe you might want to think about it a little bit differently. But for example, if you're thinking about, you know, an organization that's maybe government adjacent, that's doing work for the DOD, you know, Department of Defense, maybe that's just how long it takes because the stakes are so high. The exposure is significant. There's, there's implications to national security, for example. So then you're like, oh, okay, well, this, this kind of makes sense. It's going to take this long. But if we're talking about a startup and, you know, you're talking with a startup for six months, then you might, you might want to start balancing this out and be like, really? Is, is this what we're doing? <laughs> what? So it, it really does depend. The context matters. That's an excellent point. I think especially the government example, that's certainly, and I think the larger the company, typically the slower the process is what I've seen. Not in every case, but in most. I was just curious. Again, most of our listeners, they jump into this. One of the things we could do a lot better in general, there's loads of brilliant people, but somehow the giving of advice the source of quality leadership information in particular is lacking, I believe. Everyone needs help. Everyone needs a hand, even if you're experienced. So the reason why I ask some of these seemingly maybe even silly questions is with the guests, especially like yourself, to have feedback on some of these tough answers or maybe unknowable answers that just to get a perspective for the benefit of the listener. So Apologies for the weirdness, but I, I think that this is the feedback I've had in general is that they kind of uh, appreciate, especially the career questions. You mentioned in an earlier conversation with me that you thought it was important to set yourself up for your program up, to set yourself up for the bad day. And it was in the context of the other statement you made is, you know, you're solving human problems via technology kind of pairing those two together, what did you mean by that? And take us down the path of unpacking those two separate but related ideas. Well, I'll definitely start with that human problem statement, first of all. I love technology deeply, but I feel strongly that technology exists to solve human problems. We're doing things to make things easier, to gain insights, whether it be you know through AI, data mining, what have you. The evolution of technology has always been to solve a human problem. So keeping that distinction very clear in your mind as you're leveraging technology to do your job, and specifically in cybersecurity, to be able to, to solve those really complex problems or protect and defend your environments from threat actors, you need to understand what's at the root, because there are going to be bad days. <laughs> and when that happens, when something goes bump in the night, you need to be able to understand that what's driving you is tethered and based on protecting and defending that human problem or solving that human problem. 
and not getting so wrapped up literally around the axle of technology that you forget why you're actually there. That's the key piece. I think when I think about that, I think about how do I leverage good intelligence to give me insights, right? So I want to generate understanding. I want to facilitate decisions and I want to ultimately take action. And technology helps me do that. But even if we're talking about SOAR capabilities, that's predicated on something. There's a human model that we've looked at to say, if I'm going to allow a machine to make this decision, what would I do if I was a human being sitting, you know, hands on keyboards in front of a screen? What would I do if I was there? And there's something to be said for that, right? The human being always needs to be in that loop, even though we're shifting more workloads, if you will, more workflows even to technology to solve for us and help us at the end of the day. Let's spend a second on that. We've got many opinions on incident response, on SOAR, on the use of Intel to sort of illuminate issues, but specifically on kind of the, the what I'll call you know, the SOC analyst or the incident responder. What are the problems that people have? I know many people who buy a SOAR platform as an example, and it'll go unused or underutilized. And it's been a long time since I've been an analyst. But to me, it would have been, we were doing all that by hand. Like we were either doing it manually or we were attempting to script it ourselves because there was not a SOAR platform. There were scripting languages. And the fact that something like that exists and can be adopted and used for response, not investigation, but for response is pretty beautiful. That's a great thing. It's an exciting thing. Why do you think organizations, at least I have seen, typically under-adopt these things, even if they buy them, they go sort of, you know, there's sort of unmet promises in that, whether that's on the vendor or the organization or both or all. Why do you think that is, if you agree? Well, I do agree wholeheartedly there. I think, you know, we buy these tools, specifically those kind of tools for those kind of jobs. And why do they go unutilized or underutilized is because there's a trust issue there. Do I trust this platform to make decisions that I had human operators and analysts making? And am I willing to allow some of that responsibility to be shared with this technology and my human beings, if you will? And the other piece to this is just an understanding of the platform. We like to, you know, the royal we here, we, you know, we like to rush to, <laughs> to leverage technology, bring in tools. And I find that we don't take enough time to implement them. We install them, but we don't implement them. There's a difference. If you take the time to truly understand the attributes of a SOAR platform and how it's truly going to help your organization, and again, back to solving that human problem, that overwhelming kind of litany of data that analysts have to sift through and make all of these little micro decisions, can we save them to make the bigger decisions? If you take the time to understand that, you will start to see the value, but it really starts off in trusting the platform. You have to trust the technology. And there's a relationship there as well, right? So I have to trust that this thing's going to make the right decision consistently, not make a mistake, and potentially lead us into some kind of major security incident. Or even just an outage. Right, exactly. Which is more commonly the case where, to me, it's painfully clear you know, when you have a situation where there's sort of two different kinds of response, there is additional information gathering 
And then there is the actions taken to isolate, remedy, sort of quench the known issue. And this is all after you've identified, okay, what do we believe to be the exposure? Has there been lateral movement? Has there been multiple? Are there multiple accounts involved? What are the systems? And then, okay, now I need to either maybe learn a little more and then respond. So even before there's a sort of AI, I'm just saying like running automated playbooks, I still see some people less comfortable with that. And I'm a little bit afraid that we've taught ourselves kind of the hard way to do it. And so we're continuing the the most difficult way to do things. It's kind of like when I had to learn HTML a long, long, long time ago. This is before there was HTML editors. My professor made us write it in Notepad. And it would be like not adopting. No one uses HTML to write web pages, right, anymore, right? It's the same sort of thing. So I don't know. I think there's another type of human element where for some reason, some of our teams just enjoy suffering. Well, it's interesting that you say that. If I could unpack that, it may be not enjoying suffering, but there's an expectation of friction. If I'm doing my job right, it should be hard. I don't enjoy it being hard, but I think it should be hard. If I'm making it easy with a bunch of technology, am I truly bringing the value that, uh, you know, and fulfilling the promises that I've made? I think there's something there. There's also the, the fact that I think people have watched too many Terminator movies and, and have a certain distrust of technology. When you start to empower it to a certain degree, it's like, hey, you know what? I need to retain some control here. I'm not ready to relinquish that. You said something, the expectation of friction. And I think there's a ton of truth into that. I think that my job is in order for it to be fulfilling or in order for it to be important, maybe there has to be friction. It's got to feel, you know, it's, it's got to hurt a little bit. I think there's absolutely something there. I think the challenge is, and I want to put it back on you here live, is how do you address that to say, okay, look, we're going to remove via automation through investigation, whether it's enrichment, investigation, response, whatever that is in general, so that you can do something else. We want to take away this mundane stuff, important, but often, you know, manual, mundane, error prone. Coach, if you had someone come to you or you were going to convince them, I mean, what are the things you'd say to say, hey, look, we're going to automate this so you can do that under the auspices of something happening in the sock, uh, let's say. I mean, how do you coach on that to say, hey, look, this is important. Let's get rid of these low level tasks so we can do higher level thinking so we can use more of the human. How do you approach that? No, it's it's a great question, and it's happened. It it is happening, <laughs> you know, kind of in real time as we start to bring in, you know, more automated capabilities into our environment, and shifting, you know, our engineers, our analysts into other problem sets. And one of the things that I start off with when you know when we start having this conversation. So first of all, you have to meet that person where they are you have to kind of walk in their path and say, look, I'm not trying to make you obsolete by bringing in this technology. I'm not trying to to replace you. And I get it. I get how you could feel that way. So let's just unpack that right away. I hear you and I see you and I'm trying to understand where you're at. Now, let me widen your aperture a little bit. The reason we want to bring in these things specifically is because I have other problem sets that I need you to wrap your head around. We now are at the point where technology can take these, let's say, tier zero, tier one problems. I need you operating at tier two, three, and four. 
And here's why this matters. So the ability to define the problem from a macro level, here's how you're going to start to impact and drive deeper, more meaningful value in, in what we're doing and how we're going to start to solve this mission in a very different way. That's where I need you to be. So are you good with letting go of this to embrace this? And you'll find that starting off with empathy and compassion and trying to put yourself in, you know, in that individual's shoes allows them to lower their anxiety, lower those barriers, and they start to listen. They become a lot less defensive and they're like, hmm, tell me more. What do you mean by that? What would I be doing potentially if we implemented this technology and, and allowed some of those lower level workflows and workloads to go away? I'm glad you asked. And then we start really having a, a, a really interesting bi-directional dialogue. Right. Because honestly, I think the job of a leader, I always used, it was controversial, but I would say my job is to make you expensive. And what that meant is that the company, the market, and the individual knew that the things they were spending their time on were valuable. And valued things are typically expensive, meaning they're valued in the market, they're valued in the company. The challenge is sometimes if the market values more than the company is able to keep up, but the, the message, and people knew what that meant when I would say that, right? It, expensive sounds kind of dirty, but it means that we're going to work on the most difficult problems possible, providing that the lower level issues are being solved along the way. It served me fairly well in building of teams, but it took a while. You know, a lot of people are hung up on wanting to kind of take the manual approach or stick with what they've been doing the last several years because they thought that was their definition of good. Which leads me to another question. Do you believe that we in security suffer from a, a problem of there's no central definition of good for a security program or even a CISO? There's lots of frameworks. But what do you think about that? What is the compass for our definition of, of good? How do you know if, if there's a good program or not? That's a, a tough question to answer, but I have a perspective. You're not surprised by that, I'm sure. So if we think about the inherent ambiguity of the space, and I think about kind of just showing up, participating, trying to keep that momentum and move forward. And sometimes just moving forward, it literally, you know, a war of inches is enough, right? And so I think back just from a military standpoint, if I have a tank column and I'm, I'm just trying to get my forces, you know, to the next point, the ability to move is going to be absolutely critical. So when we think about, you know, what does good look like in cybersecurity or, or cybersecurity program or what a CISO is doing, what does good look like? I think you really have to distill it down to the simple things. Are they showing up? Are they engaged? Are they asking the right questions? Are they invested? Are they checked in? And then you can start to expand from there, but it really is some fundamental things that you're looking for initially in that program. And by the way, a program at its core is about people. All the technology and, and, and processes and all of those things are great, but it's not a program without the people. Got to have the people engaged and ready to be in the fight every day. And some days are clearer than others. I think your bigger measure is, did they come back the next day and, and try to do it again? And I know it sounds insane, but there's a sense of purpose there, right? 
they feel that there's a purpose for what they're doing and they're willing to, to come back and try it again. Even if they don't get some tangible answer, they're going to try it one more time. I think people struggle. And the reason why I asked the question, I've met more than one security leader that maybe they took over a team or maybe they just started and they have spent a bunch of money. They're maybe mostly fully staffed. And one of two things, either they secretly question if their program is, is good, right? I don't know if we're doing the right things. And or they now have to go present about how good or bad or wherever they are in this journey to the board or typically a subcommittee about sort of the, the status of their well-being. And they don't know what to do. And I've had this happen, this question or the, the request for help more than once. It's more common than, than I'd kind of like to admit. Which is why I asked the question. I was like, well, what's and I asked them, what is your definition of good? And then let's unpack where you are in relation to that. So that's why I, I love asking it to guests to kind of get their perspective on it. And everyone has still a little bit of a different answer. I loved your approach to it. I mean, does my statement augment any of your thoughts or anything else you'd add to your answer? I think it does. Actually, you know, when you were kind of, you know, giving me a little bit more context to the question, I was thinking about courtroom, right? The proving guilt or proving innocence. And where are, where's the starting point? I presented the boards and it's, it's very intimidating. And I think one of the things that I think about is you try to balance confidence with ego and other things, but I go in there going, I'm the subject matter expert. I need to communicate to you how I'm aligned with business objectives. I need to share my insights and be willing to hear their perspectives, right? And start to build a dialogue. I think one of the things that happens though, is that we try to go in there to prove ourselves. I'm going to justify why I need to be here and why my program's good and why you shouldn't replace me. That's a tough position to start from. The idea of having to prove something as opposed to sharing. I'm going to share with you what I'm doing and you're, you're going to have a perspective. I'm going to listen to it and I'm willing to make course corrections where appropriate. But I'm just going to share this with you. And what do you think? And geez, for me, nine times out of 10, that approach tends to work because you're not talking at the individuals, at those directors of the board. You're having a conversation. You're sharing something. You're giving them some meaning and understanding for where your program is going, where it is today. It's just a very different approach. Yeah, no, I love that that feedback of always trying to prove ourselves. I think is it's a different a different tone. It's a little bit of running scared. Right. Or being defensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And rather than the opposite of saying, you know, here's what I know and here's my assessment of our condition. And maybe then, and here's the help that I am seeking. Typically not in that. It's typically a status of here's where we are on this path, right? If it's that high of a meeting and you're not going to directly ask, but to understand that this is a cooperative effort, you may need some resources or whatever. But but yeah, that's a very different angle to that approach. But I like also like the balance between confidence versus ego. I don't know if there's ever a measure, an exact measure between the two. 
but you you don't want to go in and sound like a dunce. You don't want to seem insecure about your message, but you also don't want to go in and flip over the table. Exactly. Believe me, it's hard to know where that line is, but you know when you've gotten it wrong. I can say that. The thing I had to figure out on the fly without any coaching was that I wanted everyone in that room to know, to have no question of what my responsibility was and my conviction behind it. Meaning, there was no question of, of who owned the subject matter and that that person had conviction and clarity on what capabilities we did and didn't have as it relates to that responsibility. And to be maybe even a little more serious or maybe a little, uh, just a touch more stern than even they were in these sometimes rotten meeting settings. That was my take. It won't work like that for everyone, but that was kind of Steve's approach. There's also time. Here's something I want to get your take on. You've probably had this happen. I love asking this question. Typically, you're given a time slot to present, whether it's ELT, SLT, subcommittee, or board. They say, hey, you've got X number of minutes to cover Y. I've never, ever, ever had it hit the mark on time, meaning you say you're given 25 minutes. Sometimes it's even up to like 23 minutes on this topic. I've never been given the full amount. It's always been cut down. Have you encountered that? Oh, I have quite a bit. So it's always interesting, right? When you think about your feelings and what do I mean by that? There's a choice that you're making of how you feel, how you receive something. So for me, when that happens, when my time gets cut down, I think to myself, oh, well, there's a higher level of confidence here because if they weren't confident, I'd probably have two hours to be sitting in this sweating it out. But the fact that they're cutting it down means that they just want the salient points because they have confidence in my program and how I'm executing. So I say that to remind people of how you interpret things that happen. And sometimes you could perceive them as happening to you or happening around you, but the choice is yours, how you interpret that and how you shift or you know frame your mindset to be able to, to deal with that change or delta. I was always pissed. <laughs> if I was there, it was because something really awful had happened, typically. I was there as an adjunct to other things, but anyway, yeah, I was all, but I think that your point is an answer I wasn't expecting and actually is fantastic advice. The only other thing I'll give is a tactical piece of advice, I think, to the listener, and I, I'd like your take. Just be ready. Be ready if you're not going to get your full time because you still have to say something. So if you had 22 minutes and now you have six, what message do you give? And not sound foolish, right? Just what's your condensed version of whatever the hell it was you were going to say before? That is exactly it. I think about it as, as a book, right? Every time I go into these things, for, there's two things that are super important here. Always do your homework. We all get nervous going into these settings, but I always feel better when I've done my homework and I'm like, yep, I'm locked down. I am prepared. I've got my exhibits, additional information. And here's the other key thing. If I don't know something, Say that you don't know something. Hey, I'm not sure. I'm not aware. I will gather some additional information. I don't have an answer for you right now. Is it okay if I get back to you? But when you think about those engagements as, you know, as a book, right, you've got to have your table of contents. What are those key salient points that I need to get across? And if I have additional time, let's go into chapters and talk about more detail. 
But at the end of the day, at least if you can just convey that table of contents, you've done your job. They have more information when you walk out of that room than they did when you walked into it. I like that. Have the table of contents. If there's more time, hit a chapter. So what I'm going to do now, because of the time and for the listener, there's still many things that we intend to cover with Adrian. But for the listener and for the the product of the show, I'm going to end the show in the traditional way. And then we're going to continue on. So if you're listening to this, wait for the additional show because we're not done. But we're going to conclude this recording. I'm going to finish up with the traditional new CISO question, which is, pursuant to the name of the show, the new CISO, Adrian, what does being a new CISO mean to you? I think for me, what it means is you have an understanding of the clear and present danger that exists for an organization, for our nation, and, and you know, even from a global perspective. Cyberspace being somewhat the Wild West, lacking some very key you know, norms and mores that are aligned with everyone's thinking globally, is still a gray zone, right? It's still a gray area, a gray domain, if you will, that fifth domain. So... When you're coming into this space, when you're taking on that mantle, truly, that responsibility of being a new CISO, you're getting it. You're more interested in contributing to solving the problem than being an innocent bystander and looking at it. You're ready to roll up your sleeves and get into it. So remember that. Again, there will be bad days, but remember why you're, why you're there and what you're trying to accomplish and the contributions that you're trying to make. Excellent. Adrian, thank you so much. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.